0: Hey everyone and welcome to episode number 47 of the Learning to Lead Podcast. I'm excited to be with you again this month. My name is Doug Smith and this month I interviewed and got the privilege of interviewing a man named Alan Woods who after interviewing him I consider to be one of the most interesting men in the world and just to give you a little background on his story. Allen was the vice chairman and chief information officer at Mellon, Cor- Mellon Financial Corporation. So essentially he was an executive at Mellon, and he actually left his position as, as vice chairman and chief information officer to take classes at CCAC, which is a local community college, to become a paramedic. And so he went from the boardroom literally to riding an ambulance and having 20-year-olds tell him what to do. And it's such an interesting story. And in the interview, Alan will actually talk about that transition, why he made it, uh, what he learned through making that. And it's just such an interesting story. And I can't encourage you enough to listen to it. And in addition to that, he talks a lot about leadership in the interview. Uh, when he was at Mellon, he had 8,000 people reporting to him. And so he talks about how he managed that and just what he learned about leadership and really what he learned about being at the top of an organization and the price that you have to pay to get there. And uh, just such a fascinating interview. So So I hope that you'll enjoy it as you listen to it. I know I sure did, and I've listened to it several times um, since. And before we jump into the interview, I just want to make one quick announcement. We have our third Learning to Lead breakfast coming up this month. I'm so excited about it. It's on Saturday, November 15th, at be sure to go on the north side. And we're going to be entering. I'm sorry, Greg Peasley, who is an executive at UPMC, is going to be speaking and sharing what he believes to be the most important leadership lessons uh, young leaders need to learn. And so uh, there will be a link in the show notes if you'd like to come. It's a free event. You can just come. Breakfast is on us, and you can just come and learn and so i hope that you enjoyed that and i hope that you'll be able to join us and that being said if there's anything i can do for you please let me know you can email me anytime at doug smith live at gmail.com so thanks again for listening and enjoy the interview with alan thanks alan for being willing to do this interview and why don't we just start with you telling us a little bit about you okay. what you do what you're passionate about etc um
1: right now um i am a uh, advanced DMT. And I still run 911 calls up here with Medical Rescue Team South, and I'm a part-time employee of Dorchester EMS. Um, I spend a lot of time in um, the, the 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 poorest section of Charleston, South Carolina. It's called East Charleston, and while I'm there, I work um, in a soup kitchen, helping you know just feed the, the people, and we do about. Um, 150, 200 lunches a day, and then um, I've set up wellness clinics um, at the soup kitchen and on the streets of Charleston uh, for people who are really underserved, people who don't go to shelters, people who, and we do what we can for them. Uh, that, That truly is a passion. I still enjoy working out. I still enjoy teaching and participating in mixed martial arts. Um, And um, I spend um, a lot of time in prayer, uh, reading scriptures and asking the Lord, So what do you want me to do today?
0: Yeah, that's great. Well, you have a really unique story because ten years ago you weren't doing everything that you just talked about. And you're pretty high up at Mellon. Right. So talk a little bit about where you were at Mellon, and then then what, what? How did you transition? Mm-hmm. Because again, that is a story that's not necessarily normal, so to speak, in in the business world.
1: Yeah, I, uh, <clears throat> excuse me. I was a vice chairman, chief information officer at Mellon, and also ran a large part of the operations. Um, so had about 8,000 people around the world reporting to me. Um, it um, was a, a tough job, but a job that came with unimaginable perks. You know, the corporate jet, the private dining room, you know, a lot of money. And... Um, the end of 2004, beginning of 2005, I, I just realized um, that I, I was being called to do something else. And, and I, I never had a passion <clears throat> for the job. I mean, I, 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 it, people treated me wonderfully. It was a meaningful job. Don't get me wrong. But it, it, it wasn't a job that I was passionate about. So, right around the same time when I was thinking about you know retiring, it, it, the Lord just put in my head this EMS thing. And the more I thought about it, the more I became convinced that I would give up anything to do that. And that's how I knew it was what the Lord wanted me to do. So I began my EMS training in, here in Pittsburgh. Um, in August of 2005 and have been hanging out in ambulances ever since.
0: So two questions that come off that. The first one I want to ask is, you talked about living the life at the top again. Young leaders dream of getting <coughs> to a place where they can have a yeah, corner office, right. be in corporate jets. Talk to the young leaders out there they are my age and saying, I want to do anything it takes to get to that place. And what does it actually feel like when you get there? Is it everything it's cracked up to be? Do you see a lot of people waste their time trying to get there because mm-hmm. it's not what they thought it would be? You know, just speak to that in general.
1: Well, you always have to be careful about what you are willing to give to get something. Because life is a series of choices. Choices ha- choices have consequences. Some of them are good. Some of them are bad. And then there are unintended consequences. So in order to get to a position like that, you have to be totally in. I mean, that has to be your your, your, your exclusive focus to spend whatever time you have to spend to try to get there. You, you also have to take risks and chances, um, m- meaning you, you need to step up to things that you may not feel you're capable of doing, that you, have, uh, you could have a high degree of failure in. And, and if you did, that could continue, that that could just uh, uh, blow your chances of ever achieving that. Uh, once there, the the amount of pressure people in in those positions are under, if they do the job well is a, a level of pressure that's very difficult to understand. I mean, 8,000 people around the world, at any point in time, any one of those people could have been doing something could put me in jail, <laughs> you know, doing something that cost me my job. You can't manage 8,000 people individually. You just can't do it. So you, you had to put in processes and practices to make sure that you were managing and leading individuals, not just in the process and practices, but establishing a culture in which, you know, the right thing was being done for the right reasons. Um, for some people, getting to that level is truly the achievement of a goal. For me it really never was. It was just the result of a series of situations I was in. And one day I just kind of Myself there. Um, and maybe that's why uh, I describe it as something I did as opposed to who, who I really was.
0: That's good. So when you left Mellon, again you had 8,000 people reporting to you, and I, I read a few interviews that you did, and then you, you went to a back in Raymonds where 20 year olds were bossing you around. Right. Talk about that and, and the power of teachability, because right. I think it's just, you had to, I'm sure you had to humble yourself. Uh,
1: yeah, I mean it was it, there was so much of this that you know I mean the Lord's hand was so obvious in this, and the more I think about it, the more I see the Lord's hand. Um, you know when I was at Mellon, I was the smartest guy in the room. You know, we'd have these big meetings and there'd be a problem and everybody would look at Alan and say, so what are we going to do about this? And Alan would help everybody figure it out. Uh, When I went into um, EMS and I walked into my first day of class, and looked around and looked at the instructors and looked at the people I was in class with and looked at the textbook, which was several inches thick, and understood the amount of testing I'd have to go through just to get my basic levels of certification. I mean, no, I, number one, I became afraid, because, and it was a matter of pride. I said to myself, what happens if I fail? What do I do then? I mean, I, I, I told everybody this is what I'm going to do. I mean, suppose I can't do it. Suppose I fail, you know. Um, once I, I got through the class, and, and uh, the instructor I have is, is, it had is the uh, Deputy Director of Medical Rescue Team South, and he got my name with John Moses, who's still a very close friend, uh, was just incredibly patient, and, and, and he, I mean, he was really, very good. But now, we're, we're on the truck, right? And here you have people, 20s, 30s. Uh, who have been doing this for a while, and they've seen every conceivable situation, and they know how to handle it. And um, in my situation, um, I would literally consider a good day uh, in the truck when I didn't screw at least one thing up badly. (laughs) If I just screwed one thing up, that was a pretty good day. You know, I mean, I did things like let stretchers go not with a patient okay, on a, I was like, oh. on on a hill that almost took out my partner. <laughs> I mean, we had this fifty pound stretcher coming down the hill because I went to close the back of the ambulance. Door. I believe the ambulance door open while the ambulance was running, thus filling the back of the ambulance with fumes. Wow. You know what I mean? Um, I mean, my first IV. Looked like a Stephen King movie. <laughs> my partner oh God, said, God, like how did it go back there? And because the way it works is whoever uh, drives and cleans up the truck, because the other patient, the p- person's taking care of the patient in the hospital, okay. and he knew it was my first IV, my partner said, how did it go back there? I said, looks like a Stephen King movie. <laughs> no, thank God the guy the I survived. did it with was a guy who uh, was... Was on was was pretty drunk, and had in the, was trying to commit suicide, and um, had these big old veins with tattoos, and he he thought it was the best job he'd ever seen. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, so so um, yeah, it was it was very very humbling, and and it is to this day, because no matter how long I do this, the majority of the people I work with have done it longer because they're full time. And they're still much better than I am in terms of the, um, you know, the techniques that need to be demonstrated in the field. And, and um, so. What did it take
0: for you not to, to let pride overrule you? Right, I think about, and again, I'm just guessing, but look at the other people in the boardroom. Would they be able to take that step? Start for twenty twenty years, and if not, well, how come? What made you teach that that maybe wouldn't make someone else? And what do you see holding other people
1: be, back? Be, because I was absolutely convinced that this was something God wanted me to do. You know, every day I pray, God, tell me what you want me to do. But you can't make it like Elijah with the little wind. I, you got to hit me in the head. You know, and this became so overwhelmingly obvious that as I said, Dave, I was willing to give up anything. And there were many people who criticized me, uh, many people who questioned me, Mm -hmm. several people got mad at me, but it didn't matter. Um, So uh, I I knew this was what I was supposed to do. And I think any person, regardless of their position, if they're a believer, if they're... I mean, what a blessing to be absolutely convinced that God wants you to do something, right? I mean, any believer, once they're convinced of that, I don't care if they're... You know, the president and CEO of a large corporation or whatever, they didn't do it.
0: That's good. Um, so as an EMT, I'm sure you've seen a lot of, of things, right? A lot of horrific scenes. Yes. And in the, in the corporate side, too, I guess my question is, as a leader, how do you process pain? Whether it was climbing the, the ranks in the boardroom, experiencing failure, feeling that pressure, mm-hmm. or seeing the most horrific things that any human probably has seen. Uh, day-to-day, how do you deal with that emotionally and personally?
1: Well, when I was younger, in the corporate world, I'd process pain with alcohol um, and, and a lot of other things that that would take me to places that were deep and dark um, and in situations that would cause me to show up in a church early in the morning and just beg God for forgiveness. Um, now, um you know, I process pain by talking about it to fellow workers, <clears throat> pray about it, um, realize that I, I can't change—I I can't change what happened to someone—but I can make it better. You know, m- most of the things that I do, we do, uh, aren't necessarily medically fixing someone. It's holding someone's hand in the middle of the night because they're afraid on the way to the hospital. It's <clears throat> reassuring someone, and many times believers that 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 there's three of us back here: me, you, and the Lord. You know, um, and it, it, this is going to sound to to someone who's not involved in it. In many ways, you get numb to the the, the the physical horrificness of some of the scenes. You never get numb to the emotional trage- tragedies and travesties. And so many of those are... Uh, a situation, I had a, 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 a young girl who found her father who had just committed suicide. and. Spending time with her and her mother, getting them a glass of water, talking to them before we left the scene, especially when a death occurs, asking a person of the scene um, where a guy had had found his father dead, um, asking him if he wanted me to pray with him over his father's body. those are the kinds of things that not only provide comfort for the for the family but provide comfort for me
0: yeah
1: you know that's
0: a great answer it's hard to transition to another question after that but let's talk about personal leadership a uh, mm-hmm. little bit walk us through your leadership journey again it's, it doesn't sound like you aspired you said that you basically got to the top by a result of choices What? You know, you, you talk about, you, I, you, I never knew you were growing up in the Bronx. Brooklyn. Parents,
1: Brooklyn, not Bronx. Brooklyn. Sorry, Brooklyn. Sorry, no, Brooklyn Bronx. That's a bad one. it's <laughs> <laughs> like I was in the Marines. Yeah. Tell me I was in the Army. You don't do that. Uh, uh, <laughs>
0: but your parents weren't educated. Yeah. You know, did you have mentors come in your life and teach you leadership? Was it just in Stoaton?
1: You know, it's, it's it's another one of these things where you, I never thought about it at the time, especially the life I was living. But I, I started college at 16 years old. I had skipped a grade in grammar school. I'm still not sure why, but I did. Uh, <clears throat> so I started college 16 years old, all my peers were 18. And uh, fully realizing that the main reason I was in college was to have fun and and to drink and to date as many women as I could, I joined a fraternity, right? Well, I, I decided I was going to become president of the fraternity. Mm. It, no leadership. I, I did. I became president of the fraternity. And... I, that was my first taste of leadership. And then I went to Officer Candidate School in the Marine Corps, and that's where I learned leadership, both in schools but also in the field. And through mistakes, through experiences, learned what it meant to be a, a good leader. Um, so, w- while I didn't have any particular mentor, that background of leading men in the Marines, leading men in combat, uh, and 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 the Marine Corps model for leadership. Um, you know, it's interesting when you look at it and and you read the servant leader when you think about listening to Jesus on his rule, the advice he gave to his apostles, I've come to serve, not to be served. That really is at the basis of Marine Corps leadership. You are there to serve the people in your command. When it comes time to eat, guess what? You eat last. When it comes time for mail, you get yours last. When it comes time to send guys out, you go out with them. You know? When it comes time to take accountability for failures... Of your unit, you take the responsibility and the accountability. When it comes time for praise, you push your men out in front. So, it, 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 and I didn't realize this until late in life when I started to read about what I think Jesus, you know, and, and, and who was my role out of Jesus? I mean, Jesus, <clears throat> the ultimate leader, he was an adventurer. He was a warrior. He was courageous. Um, he um, uh, w- w- was, was not affected by the status quo. Um, he, he, his, his main mission was to make those that he was responsible for better. And that's what leaders do. But the biggest thing a leader does is change things. And that's the hardest role any leader has. Is to, is, uh, General Schwarzkopf, I was at a conference with him one time, and he was asked about leadership, and he said the, fi- the, f- the first role of a leader is to get people to do things that under normal circumstances they would never think of doing. And he said typically that involves change because we're not wired to do change well. So change management is the hardest thing a leader has to do. Knowing what to change, knowing how much to change, knowing how to condition an organization to effectively change, and when it goes wrong, having the courage to take responsibility for it. When it goes right, giving the credit to all of the people who made it happen.
0: That's good. What do you what do you do or what did you do What do you do to continue to grow and develop as a leader as you grew Are you a big reader Did you resource yourself Was it going to conferences Was it just working harder uh, How did you continue to grow to go to that next level
1: Well, now I there's not, I don't lead much anymore You know uh, and, and, Well, it's, it's 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 an interesting question because. I think the most effective leaders are those who lead movements or groups where the people within them have no accountability to the leader. So you're leading through influence. So, for example, in, in, in the soup kitchen in Charleston, trying to get different programs implemented. I mean, I, I just volunteer there. I I... I, I I'm not on any boards anymore. The last board I was on was Holy Family Institute up in Emsworth and, and I was chair of that board up until June of last year. Um, and I don't want to be on any boards anymore. Um, I mean, I want to be on the streets. And, but this morning, that was leadership. Right, telling a story, getting people to think about things in a different way, participating in the change. Um, right before I came back to Charleston, two of my grandsons were with me, both early teens, down in Charleston. So right before I came back to Pittsburgh, we were in Charleston. So I said to them, guys, you're going to spend a week with me. We're going to do some fun things, and we're going to do some things better community service. So one of the things I did with them, I took them to a place called the Hot Dog Stand. And it's this empty lot in this very poor part of Charleston where every night a different church group sets up tables and grills hot dogs and gives them out to whoever shows up. So I said, I've reserved you two spots there, one for ketchup and one for mustard. And while you're doing that, I'm going to set up our wellness table and take care of whatever you know comes about. Well, one of the guys who came up to see me, was a guy I knew, um, had 15 stitches in his lip and he said, um, I asked him how he got it, and he told me he got jumped, and he said, I'm going to get that guy. I know who did it. And when he said get, there was no misunderstanding about what he meant. And he and I had spoken about the Bible before, and I asked him what he thought Jesus might say about that. Well, he goes back to the Old Testament, (laughs) and I said, that's not the question. And this guy was altered. I mean, he, his eyes were pinpoint and he was off somewhere else, you know. Sure. But we spent about 50 minutes together. And it was, and at the end of those 50 minutes, he said, Alan, uh, I'm not as sure about it as I was when we started this conversation. Well, to me, that's leadership.
0: Yeah.
1: Right? It's not the kind that I used to do at Mellon, it's not the kind I used to do when I was chair of the board of Holy Family. But it's a different kind of leadership. And um, yeah, I read a lot of books. Um, and. Um, if you
0: were to give the top five, you'd say every, everybody should read. What would they be? If they'd be uh, three, it doesn't matter how many books.
1: The Bible. Um, the um, um, Wild at Heart. And. A book called Good to Great by Jim Collins. That's I've so met, funny.
0: I was just telling, I figured out every interview I've done like this, there's not one, I I'm, was I'm basically waiting for it. There's not been one person that hasn't mentioned Good to Great. I mean, it's a fantastic. book.
1: I actually met him. Did you really? We're on a plane, uh, the chairman of, of Mellon and I, and we're going to a conference in Arizona. Jim was going to be a speaker at a conference, so we stopped in Denver, I think it was Denver, and picked him up. We're on the corporate jet. So I had some real quality time just he and I talking. And his next book was going to be about non-profits, by the way. So really? he was asking me a lot about it because of Holy family. And um, um, he, 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 he was talking about his wife was a great athlete. I mean, really great athlete. They lived at the bottom of a mountain. And he said, you really had to be secure in your malehood because we played this game called Capture the Flag where she would give me a 10- to 15-minute head start up the mountain, and she'd catch me by the time we got to the oh, top. Man. You know, But, uh, yeah, just a, a great, great guy. And, uh, I mean, really bought into... Like, there's too, Good to Great and Built to Last is another one of his books. And the, the message really is about the leader, you know, and, and it's about the visionary... Um, uh, and, and so, so terrific books. Another book, uh, it's called "Execution: The Art of Making Things Happen," and it really stresses something I believed in very, very much: that leaders have to get involved in the details because that's where the devil is. Um, when, 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 when leaders think they fly above the details, they send a message that um
0: sorry sorry to interrupt i have nina Hagen on the phone did you contact her earlier this week about her husband i did can, she... can i call her back
1: yes okay mm-hmm.
0: she may just want a letter
1: she wants the names of all of the individuals
0: okay so i tell I'll her i'll call her and let her know. know okay yep thanks. yep sorry
1: so anyhow, yeah, the book the book really talks about the need for leaders to get involved in the details. And most leaders think when they get to a certain level, the details are the dirty places that other people should handle, or they don't have the time. Or the, and 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 that probably is one of the most important leadership lessons I've ever learned: is no matter how what level you are, you got to be hands on.
0: Now, while, while you're on that, so. I'm sure you came across, I don't know if you're detail-oriented by nature no. or you had to be. So speak of that because I I am generally not a detailed person. Right. I see the importance of it and right. I try to be. But what advice do you have for the people that, that aren't like that but get it? How but, do you get it?
1: you got to force yourself. Because the reason people don't get involved in the details is because the details are ugly. They're boring. <laughs> they're right. tedious. So you got a major... Program, project going on, right? That, you know, involves massive change at all different levels. So you, the first thing you got to do is put a structure in place that will make sure you have the details presented to you in an organized fashion. So, for example, you appoint someone as the project architect, and that person's job is to take that project and break it down into a series of Benchmarks, if it's a long project. And each benchmark will be broken down to the task level. And a task is defined as something that's not more, that's not less than eight hours, not more than 40 hours in duration. And that becomes the basis of you keeping score. Then there's a whole different set of processes that need to be put in place for work in progress. And this is where most people really wet the bed in leadership. They they get so enchanted with the big projects where they may get involved in some of the details there, but they'll forget that there's a day-to-day undercurrent of work that goes on that you're getting paid for that better happen well. Because if it doesn't, it's going to open you up to corruption. It's going to open you up to terrible mistakes. It's going to open you up to inefficiencies. Um, and you're going to lose customers. You're going to lose money. So the advice is that, that you've, the leader has to force processes. So what I would do is every one of my senior people every month would present a book. And I would have a template for what that book would look like. And it was thick. It was a big, thick book. And it would be meant to, to, to cover everything that went on in that organization, from the financials to the day-to-day operations, to the quality, to productivity, to, um, uh, y- y- you know, errors, to whatever. And the key to that was not to allow the person presenting to spoon-feed you what they wanted to spoon-feed you. So the rule was, I'll get the book two years in advance, as I was telling the guys before. I will read the book. I will ask you questions about the book. We're not going to go page for page. I may say, I only got one question for you, and it's on page 44. When I compare the number on page 44 to the number on page 17, they don't make sense, Right? So um, it, it, that, that kind of process forces us to do what's normally, un- and most people are not detail-oriented, and it forces us to do those unnatural things.
0: That's good. <clears throat> a few minutes, left, talk about faith and how, how your faith impacted your work. It's probably It may not be, but it's, it sounds like it may be a little bit easier now than it was in Mellon. How did you, you live out your faith
1: yeah.
0: with all that pressure in the culture that, that the work environment produced, etc. cetera?
1: Um, I, I, I did it by trying to be the leader that Jesus was. Um, I can remember having a dinner with a bunch of my executives. And at the dinner, a woman asked me the question, who, who do you think was the greatest leader of all time? And I said, Jesus Christ. And at first she said, but he wasn't real, believe it or not. Oh. And I said, well, let's, for the sake of the argument, assume that he was, because he was. <laughs> and by the way, if he, if he, you know, your short side of this decision is pretty big. Yeah. <laughs> you know, if I'm wrong, no big deal. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and I said, look at the model of Jesus Christ. And and think about what leaders do. I mean, leaders change things. What change has been greater and more sustainable than the change that Jesus made? And Jesus didn't have McKinsey and company at his disposal to help him put change management practices in place. I mean, leaders have to be courageous because they have to be willing to sacrifice for the change and did Jesus do that? I mean, he sacrificed his sacrifice life. Jesus, I mean, leaders have to be absolutely convinced that they're there to serve the people that they've been given responsibility for. And Jesus did that as well. So what part of this are we missing? What leader did it better? You pick one. So whenever...
0: What did she respond
1: nothing yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and 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 so when things got dicey and they did and, you know um, I would go back to the model of I've come to serve not to be served and and, and what does that mean
0: It's um, good. Two last questions. One, if you had any advice for young leaders, maybe take your grandsons. Okay, your grandsons are, are young. What advice would you give young leaders?
1: The first part of the advice is make sure you want to be a leader. You know, General Schwarzkopf again at this interview was talking about what what does it take to be a leader and he, he, he said, well, I got these two dogs. One is the majestic German shepherd. 125 pounds, king. The other is this little small dog, I forget what it was, Killer. And he said, do you know who the dominant dog in the house is? Who's the leader? And he said, it's Killer. And he said, do you know why? Because when Killer looks in a mirror, you know what he sees looking back at him? The majestic 125 muscular German Shepherd. He's the leader because he thinks he is. So the first piece of advice is make sure that's what you want to be. A lot of people think they just should be leaders, and that's not their role, that's not their calling. And if you try to force that, it doesn't work. Okay. The, the, the second piece of advice is if you choose to be a leader, lead. Do it. Don't wait for the perfect amount of training, because most leadership is on the job training. Look for positions to lead, and l- learn from the many mistakes that you're going to make. Um, but too many times, leaders—I—I I was asked to give the um, commencement address at Carnegie Mellon School of Information Sciences a number of years ago. Yeah, that's awesome. And they asked me to speak on leadership, and they—they—they—they. They, 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 they said, you know, our, our students are brilliant, and they are. I mean, you could just smell the brains in that my wife auditory. There. Oh, my
0: brother-in-law, play. my father-in-law works there. Brilliant,
1: you know. And um, but but they 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 couldn't lead, you know, uh, someone to the bathroom, and that was the feedback they were getting from the corporate world. So they needed a talk on 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 leadership, and one of the problems and I used to see this when I'd hire very smart people from very smart schools. Leaders need to make decisions. And if you wait to make a decision until you have all the empirical data to make that decision, forget about it. The decision will have made itself because every decision has a timeline. So you've got to make that decision never having all the information you wish you would have. Well, so many times the geniuses from these sophisticated MBA programs will want one more piece of information, one more piece of information, another, one more analysis, and meanwhile, nothing is happening. You know, nothing, a bad decision, I would tell people, is better than no decision. A bad decision is better than no decision. Because as long as there's no decision, you've got no chance. If there's a bad decision, you can figure it out that it's bad and adjust from there, at least something's happening.
0: That's good. Last question, it's eleven o'clock. What do you want what do you want to be remembered for? When people think of Allen Woods, what do you want them to think?
1: Benedictus qui, vani and nomine domine. You know what that means? Nope. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's it. I love it. That's it. That's all I want to be remembered as.
0: Anything else you want to say?
1: No, that's it. Okay. Thank you
0: so much for your time.
1: All right.